The following audio is taken from the Evolution Soup YouTube video interview with Gabriel Vinyas, Sculpting Human Origins. In this video, Gabriel points out various sculptures, tools, etc. to the camera. Obviously, this cannot be seen in this audio rip, but if you want to see the complete video interview, the link is in the podcast description. Gabriel Vinas, thank you very much indeed for coming on to Evolution Soup all the way from Arizona. You're a sculptor working in collaboration with scientists to bring extinct human ancestors to life, and your goal is to bring as much scientific accuracy to these reconstructions as possible. And uh, I think we can just about see some of your uh, projects behind you. Do you want to just briefly point out some of those uh, interesting sculpts there? So yeah, behind me, I have an Australopithecus afarensis uh, male specimen that uh, I've been working on with Brian Campbell and Machi Henneberg as part of our studies. And uh, underneath is a 3D print of this specimen. Oh, no. And we usually use 3D prints or early generation castings uh, from the fossils themselves. Gosh, that's so cool. But before we discover how you create those works, let's just hear a little bit about your background and how this passion for art began. Well, I mean, to answer that question, we'd have to go back to a little island in the Caribbean. I was born in Cuba in 1991. And uh, before I could walk, I could talk. And I was just a little precocious little ape, as my mom likes to say. And <laughs> I, I would be insatiable. I would be pretty bored with uh, typical toddler activities, but my mom could always count on giving me a pencil and paper to keep me occupied for hours, occupied for hours on end. And um, stick figures came in, into fruition, which later became simple cartoons of the world around me. And I just started to pick up on drawing people and whatnot. I was lucky enough to have a support system and a family that, in a sense, they not only supported, but they, they pushed me and they they were happy to provide materials what little they could to uh, entertain my, my whims uh, this early on. Uh, and this isn't really a common occurrence since we in Cuba, as you may know, and your audience might know, it's a third world country and it, there's scarcity and uh, poverty that my parents had to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. So to have that support for something as uh, uncertain as art, I think I've, mm. I feel very uh, fortunate to have the parents and the support system that I did. And within the support system were other members of the community that would give me wires and other kind of materials to make little things so i would be, i began this mechanistic exploration of the world that would make little bicycles or I would make people or stick figures with the wires so i began to explore three dimensions uh, pretty early on and through the heroics and hard work of my father andres um, my mother and i were granted the opportunity to come to the united states in 1996 and uh, that's how i got here so Gabriel, how was your transition to living and studying in the United States? How did that go? Well, after a rocky start in American public schools, I finally got to learn the language and I, I got some measure of command over the language and started getting good marks in school. And after mm -hmm. that, I was placed in a magnet program is what we call it here in the United States. It's basically a government program where the school is allotted more public funding but most or a lot of that funding is supposed to go to the arts. So it's like an arts initiative. Right. And uh, right. as, a, as a measure for inclusion, it, it, only, it doesn't go just to that school. It, there's an audition process for students in other districts to 
have the chance to come to that school. And I was one of those people that was granted that opportunity and I did the audition and I was in magnet schools from late elementary all the way up to high school. So how did your interest in paleoanthropology begin? Well, after my high school studies, I was granted a full scholarship at the College for Creative Studies in Detroit. And right when I got there, I had already developed some sort of uh, technique and uh, I was pretty comfortable with my abilities to depict the world around me. So I was my art was generally all portraiture and figurative sculpting. And one of my mentors, Cheeto Johnson, uh, he he saw something that I didn't, and it's that my work was missing something, uh, that, that was missing my voice. He's, uh, to his credit, I mean, I think he was right. All I was doing was copying things and relying on my, uh, my abilities, and he didn't want me to just rely on that because uh, that generally fades when it's not impressive that you're young and you have this ability. So he challenged me to, to explore more uh, philosophical ideas, to find my voice that I would eventually bring to bear on my work. And this was around the same time that I was investigating and challenging some of the ideas that I had previously held when I was growing up because uh, my family, um, they weren't very religious, my nucleic family, but my mm. supporting family that took care of me quite often as my parents were juggling multiple jobs to support us when we first got here. They were the equivalent of uh, like born again Christians uh, and evangelicals, I suppose, just like a, a Caribbean flavor to that. I grew up uh, pretty religious, I suppose, since I was I went to mass uh, or not mass, but the service um, pretty often. And mm -hmm. if this was true, I mean, why not take an interest in it? And it was always told to me that these things were true. So I slowly grew out of it just naturally, but I never did a philosophical deep dive like I did in, in college. And since this coincided with that uh, challenge by my professor, and I was getting into uh, the philosophies of uh, postmodernism and, and other art-related philosophies at the time, that led me to uh, authors like Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, uh, Dan Dennett, and the like. And eventually, or around the same time, I had found a book um, the Illustrated A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking and the oh, pages yeah. from that book just blew my mind that science could be communicated in this way and then around that same time I had look, looked up Cosmos on the internet and I was just like I caught the science bug I'm sure you and a lot of your audience members yes yeah, so it all sounds very familiar Gabriel <laughs> yeah and I was just blown away that science could be this interesting and this mm. fascinating and that eventually, since I was a sculptor and anatomist, I suppose, or anatomist in training, because I, I took a huge uh, interest in anatomy because my sculptural heroes and artistic heroes growing up were the Italian Renaissance masters, and it just became like a nat natural uh, landing point for me to look at anthropology and physical, uh, the physical changes throughout time. And that just took hold of my imagination and took, took my artistic practice, and I ran with it. Right. So uh, what was the reaction by your professors about this, um, this change in focus? I suppose they were very supportive. Uh, they, they granted me anything that I needed. Uh, I, I, was, I, I was lucky to have that support system. And I suppose that this, this change where it was less about my abilities, but more about the ideas that I was exploring, their, their social use, and just my enthusiasm about, enthusiasm about it really uh, captured their imagination as well. And for my thesis exhibition at the end of those studies, I was uh, given an award called Senior Select where every year they choose a graduating student 
and they gave him a privileged position in the gallery space. And that was a culmination of my studies there, which were a series of small reconstructions about this size, just about, in fact, this is one of them. So they were about this size, but I showed the clay versions of these and side by side were photographs of each of them just to like play with the scale, play with the, the aesthetic read of those objects. And I think they were very well received and I was very happy to conclude my studies there with such amazing support from my teachers and professors. So was that around the time you started working with scientists? Well, not quite. Once the thesis exhibition was uh, over with, I was plucked out of college by Ford Motor Company to uh, sculpt cars for them. And uh, I stayed there for a subsequent four years. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, early in that process, right after I graduated, I had posted through Instagram uh, images of that uh, thesis exhibition. So my small reconstructions and, and the photographs that accompanied them, they were all up there and they caught the attention of a young scientist finishing his uh, bachelor studies at the University of Adelaide in Australia. And uh, I mean, to my discredit, he did approach me a few times and I just wasn't very proactive, uh, but I, I was really glad that he was persistent and eventually I did respond and I, I just view it as one of the best things that's happened to me in my life. He's a treasured friend and uh, a treasured colleague. So that's around the time when we, he proposed to me that we do a Tong child together. And he said that he had access to a very early generation fossil casting uh, because his uh, mentor at the time, and still to, to this day, he's our mentor, is Machi Henneberg, who was a custodian, original custodian for the fossil. So he has uh, probably the most accurate castings from that fossil that you can get. Uh, because uh, up to that point, I was using uh, bone clones products, which, I mean, it's a fabulous resource. It's just all of those are sculpted facsimiles of the real thing. They're not they're not cast from original fossils, even though that's... Yeah, I've got a couple myself right right in this room. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, then we started collaborating on that while I was working at Ford Motor Company. We did uh, what we call Tong 1, Tong version 1. And for anyone and, who doesn't know what the Tong child is, uh, could you just right. briefly give a description of uh, the Tong what child that is, uh, is often considered, or is considered the type specimen for Ocelopithecus africanus. It's... Uh, it's a small child uh, of that genus and, uh, and species that uh, is it's just a famous fossil. And so it's, it's famous for its completeness. It's famous for how well-preserved the endocast and the, the outer part of the bone is preserved and almost the entire face is preserved. Mm -hmm. And so eventually we, we did a, we did that, that sculpture. And it, at that time we were following colloquial knowledge, uh, what little we could find in books. And we weren't doing a, so much as a deep dive into the available literature, but we were enthusiastically depicting science, which is what paleo artists do. So at, at that time, that's what we were doing. And then his mentor, Machi Henneberg, he saw promise in what we're, we were doing and wanted to be a little bit more involved. And I suppose he gave us this feedback of all the scientific issues that he found with uh, that specimen. And that was the catalyst for us starting to think about what we eventually started uh, considering our new method. Ah, and what, can you tell us what that is? What is it exactly? Yeah, so with his feedback and everything that we had to change, it was almost like we, we found this, this model of making or, or doing science rather than just uh, depicting it. So we saw that there were challenges mm. to our claims, which is uh, like we, 
we viewed the sculpture itself as a claim. It's, it's a claim on what this organism may have looked like. And if scientists right. have certain issues with it, then those are the things that we have to consider. And then we thought that there would be a good way to do this as objectively as possible. So to bring to bear as many scientific papers, scientific ideas, and experts on every given uh, portion of the anatomy that we can to try to come up with, as far as we know today, as far as we have um, in writing today, uh, a publication and also a model that would be uh, shown to the public as the most uh, accurate scientific model that we can muster at the moment. Right. Well, you recently had a Lucy and Tong child reconstruction uh, displayed in Adelaide, Australia. So how did this opportunity come about? Right. Where well, this was actually the second uh, Tong that uh, we did. We call him Tong version two and actually have him right here. This is ah. he. Yeah. So we consider it a prototype and consider those two part of the growing pains of uh, our research. So we've then pulled them from their displays and also began to challenge them. So to challenge our own claims that we had previously made. And now we are working side by side with Machi and then he and I to produce a new method for reconstruction uh, that takes into account uh, all the available literature that we've been able to dig up and are now working on Tong version three, as well as uh, replacing that Lucy as well. So we're redoing all the specimens that we had been doing. So well, that's really good science, yeah. isn't it? It's like not just, uh, you know, accepting the first bit of data that comes along, you know, accepting that you have to sometimes change things. Well, uh, correct. I mean, that's, that's the spirit of science to, hmm. to make a claim, test it. And when it falls short then the changes have to be made or different reasonings and different arguments and different bits of data have to be considered. And, uh, it, it's a good thing that there are updates. I mean, if we don't hold ourselves to that standard then we can't really propose a standard by which other practitioners in the future uh, could adopt. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. And the one behind your left shoulder there, um, that is the, the current one, is that right? Uh, which which one? This one here. Yes. Yeah. This is this was made with that new uh, method. It's a Australopithecus afarensis male, whereas uh, the, the the female specimen, the type specimen Lucy, uh, she is already in production in Adelaide mm -hmm. with Ryan at the moment. So okay. she has been completed, and cool. I'm currently finishing doing the finishing touches on uh, the Tong child, and then that'll be shipped over as well. And it's also important to note that uh, Ryan isn't just the, I guess, chief scientist of our team. He's also a forensic mold maker. He's highly skilled in uh, making reproductions of skulls and the, all that interest in, in anatomy and physiology, as well as his interest in movies and special effects. It kind of made him the perfect partner for me to find because uh, while I have certain abilities with, with mold making, my, my expertise mm -hmm. is in the sculpting and the anatomy, whereas 
he's really interested and has this very insatiable hunger to get re reproductions correct. So when I send him a clay sculpture, he has to go through the process of uh, making a mold for it so that we could produce copies of it. So this right here is yep. a silicone casting. So it's, you know, it's soft. We, you can move the ears and whatnot. It's got hair punched <laughs> into it. But this was once clay. So the clay version, he went and made a mold all over it that comes apart. This, the clay comes, comes out of it. And then a copy of it, either in resin or silicone in this case, is made uh, using uh, his techniques. Yes, you do see that in special effects documentaries when they're making prosthetics. And, right. uh, I think they're what they call appliances for like aliens and so yeah. forth. It's very similar, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I guess the best place to start is to ask you what the process is from beginning to end. What is the sequence of construction? As a starting measure, I place the eyes in their anatomical position and begin to develop the subcutaneous tissues. The thickness limits are derived from the method that Ryan Campbell and I are currently using. To keep within the ranges derived by the method, pegs are often used on the skull itself to show the boundaries, or I'll use needles to measure the depths of the clay, and that's what keeps me from adding too much clay when developing the anatomy. While developing the anatomy muscle by muscle isn't exactly necessary with the current method, I feel it is worth the trouble to do so to see the variation in muscular proportions to compare to other specimens on a later date. I normally clean up and refine each muscle further in order to scan this data at certain intervals to keep a record. But for the purposes of this video, I've gone ahead and covered them in a rough but descriptive manner. The clay I'm using at room temperature is a very hard clay. However, once heated, it's soft, even for minutes after being applied. But after a short time, it will regain its hardness and allow me to carve and shape as needed as shown. Once I begin to add the surface anatomy, I take pains to make sure that I don't over or underdo the points and construct the skin and fatty tissues over the underlying anatomy to bring the subject to life. During this clip you've seen the first 50 minutes of sculpting on this piece. I will undergo 50 hours or more of sculpting refining the surfaces, wrinkles and pores to achieve a finish like this. And then shipping to Ryan to undergo the molding process. During those 50 hours, we will go back and forth consulting the available literature on subjects like the nose, the lips, uh, or any other subsequent information that we find along the way. And we make adjustments and we correct our model as we see fit. Wow, that is really fascinating. Thank you for doing that time lapse. That is, that is really interesting. No, you're very welcome, Mark. I, and then after that point, since uh, I didn't get into the, the wrinkles very much or the surface textures like the skin pores, mm. I'll go ahead and I'll add those, which takes a few weeks. And then uh, that, uh, if I add a torso, which I usually do a little area, so that's not just a head on a spike, um, I'll uh, send that over to Ryan and he'll take care of the the mold making and the production. And that it'll be ready for either museum settings or classroom settings, or even just collectors that want to support the work. Wow. Well, there are definitely going to be artists and aspiring artists watching this video who are saying to themselves now, I wonder what kind of materials he uses. So let's just spend a little bit of time on that. Uh, what type of tools, um, clay, et cetera. And um, question I want to know is how on earth do you make the eyeballs? <laughs> yeah, so I use a myriad of tools that will be familiar to anyone who's done 
pottery or sculpting or ceramics in any capacity. Mm. So these are they're called boxwood tools sometimes, or just called wooden tools that mimic the tips of your finger, so that you can move clay around without hurting your finger. But it also has an edge, so that you can make detail lines and creases in the clay. I use a lot of uh, wire tools. So this has a slightly oh, square yeah. edge and a, a rounded edge on this side. Uh, some of them come angled like this. Uh, some of them are a little bit more rigid ribbons. Yeah, they're, they're starting to look familiar. It's reminding me of art class. And yeah. <laughs> I did a but little I, bit of sculpting, but not much. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, I developed a lot of new techniques and used new tools during my time that I mentioned at Ford Motor Company. Uh, so this yep. is a design tool where they come in all sorts of designs, just like the other ones. Some of them are angled, some of them are flat, uh, some of them are perfect 90. Uh, but this one I've slightly modified to have teeth on the end, where when I pull it across the clay, it shows me the high and low spots. So this will be the one that I use the most just to, to make sure that I get everything exactly where I want it. So once I add clay and I, and I like the mass, sometimes when the mass is almost ready, there's a lot of tweaking with highs and low spots. Because even though our skin and our heads have imperfections, there's still a lot of areas that are pretty consistent in terms of the surface. So this this allows me to do that along with other tools that I've picked up and modified from my time at Ford. So these are called steels. So these little ones that are pretty flexible, I, I will ride them like this. This is a flat edge. I could use the round side as well just to keep surfaces consistent. So if I was doing a forearm, there aren't a lot of divots and irregularities here. There's just one major one, but I can mark that. And then here, I can run that along here in different directions, and that'll uh, make that surface look clean and very voluminous. So, so it's like, so it'll feel like there's anatomy underneath. So it, it really helps with that uh, like level of realism and dynamism uh, when, when constructing these forms. Okay, what about the eyeballs? I'm fascinated by those. <laughs> oh, right. I mean, when we first started, we we had a company that we commissioned, so to speak, with uh, custom orders for different sizes. As you know, uh, specimens are different sizes or, or, you know, we've gotten a little bit bigger over time and our orbits are bigger. And so we, since we're not constructing modern day humans, we had uh, particular needs that had to be met, particularly with the tongue child, since that's what the one we started with. So, uh, but we, we saw that we were going to have this request and these special needs almost every single time. So uh, Ryan and I decided to design our own eyes and to produce them in three different sizes that you know would fit most, uh, most applications. Uh, since eye, eye size doesn't vary all that much, so we have three different sizes. But he's come up with this uh, ingenious uh, mold within a mold situation where the cores can be uh, acrylic, solid uh, white that can be painted, and then there's uh, a, a clear acrylic over the top uh, that kind of has the, the veneer of a real eye. So as you, if you saw Tong when I held him up before, he has uh, one of the first versions of those eyes, where if you looked at it sideways, uh, the, the clear kind of looks like a real eye in, uh, in profile. Right, so how do you go about researching? How much of it is science and how much of it is artistic? Well, there'll always be some form, one way or the other, of artistic input or interpretation, uh, primarily to fill in the gaps of small details or, or even major ones that we might never really know. Uh, it, there's things like the style of the hair or 
where it starts on the scalp or the exact skin tone or the shape of the lip uh, as opposed to another shape. So uh, these things, if you've been to either just two museums, uh, let alone all the ones that are available, uh, mm -hmm. vascularity, skin color, blemishes, all those things vary significantly among uh, paleo-artistic -art uh, practitioners. And I, that is a hobby horse, as you know, of a lot of creationists where mm -hmm. they'll jump on that as if all of the science is wrong. But what we want to do is try to tighten that gap that even though we know that that's going to be a factor, uh, if we consider as much literature as possible and what we do, what we aspire to do is to publish our findings and publish our reasoning for mm -hmm. our, uh, our reconstructions so that someone else could challenge them. So it, it's like we're bringing sculpture as a practice of doing the science. So the, we want to consider the reconstruction itself that goes into mu a museum as if it was a publication that should be. It's like, a, it's like a peer review in a way. Right. So when we, when we publish written words, because that's, that's how you, how science has been done, but the model itself is a product of that paper and therefore subject to criticism. And, and we welcome that because we're doing it to ourselves. I mean, the Tom child that we have here, we've deemed it I mean, as, as beautiful and, and as much as we, we really loved creating this, mm. we don't see it fit for museums and for the public because everything that we've found since creating it uh, challenges what the decisions we've made. So it's not, it's not enough just to slap on the veneer of science onto something. We, we really want to substantiate it with as much literature and as many scientific ideas as possible. Gabriel, what is it that realistic model hominids like yours adds to the appreciation of these long extinct creatures? Well, I think there is something about an object that's in your space, it's, it's intruding, or you have to reckon with it, it's staring back at you, it mm. looks real, it's hijacking those, those markers that we look for when we're looking around. So I'm sure you and your viewers can appreciate that we aren't outside of the natural world, we're a product of it, so we're, we're evolved creatures, and we're evolved social creatures, and we, mm. we've evolved the ability and almost the necessity to interface with one another. To, to reckon with someone who's in your space, who is a problem or a good thing or, or, or to solve something. So I think an, a, an object that doesn't move or, or is just an object, it's just silicone, it's just hair, it's just plastic, that still tricks our minds into doing what we do on a daily basis when we see other people. So I think that reconstructions or at least realistic sculptures, they, they have a way of hijacking that evolved trait. And... I think it adds something that just merely reading the words or looking at pictures of fossils or even looking at the fossils themselves. Like we don't have that much of a visceral reaction to this, but when mm -hmm. we're confronted with another being almost or a facsimile of a being, it's, it, it just changes our psychology. It challenges us in a way that uh, as important as the writings are, it, it does something different. And uh, as, as someone who did come to love science, through the words of you know, Stephen Hawking and, and Richard Dawkins, uh, Selfish Gene, and books like that, it really wasn't until I saw Cosmos that I like, really fell in love with, with the beauty of science. So that I think there, that there's something that aesthetics can do to bring uh, our emotion to bear, to bring us to logic, because even though emotions can sometimes get in the way of, of logical um, thought, sometimes it has a way of uh, maybe bringing people who otherwise wouldn't 
stay. So some people have problems with dry reading, but if you can excite them in a different way, I think that's, that's a worthwhile endeavor. And, and then actually that brings me back to when I was in uh, late in college. So I had already started investigating anthropology and been pretty familiar with practitioners, but I found myself at the Smithsonian and in the presence of John Gertie's work. And it, there was just a different read, even though I'd seen images of this work, there was a completely different read. And he made that dream of mine, even more of a, of a possibility. Like he, he, his work made that dream for me real that, that I want to become a, yeah. And John Gertie is a paleo sculptor who's been around for a long time and his, right. his work is in museums and everybody who's into this probably has seen his work. Right. And, and I, I mean, I, I thank him. I, I haven't met him, but hopefully I'll meet him at some point, but he, he made that dream real for me with his work. And I think that artwork has a unique capability of doing that. And so that comes to why we do this. So, so as science educators, I suppose, since that's what the models are supposed to do for the public, uh, to have the thought that one day my work could possibly inspire another scientist, even if it's not in evolutionary anthropology, if it's cancer researcher or astronomer. Uh, if, if the way that I present the science has a way of doing that and inspiring someone who otherwise wouldn't be as excited to say, read a book, I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And I, I mean, like I said, I, I thank Gertie and the Kenneth brothers and Elizabeth Danes for having done that for me, and I'm sure that they've done it for so many other people. I just, I, I want to do that in the future as well. Yeah, something about uh, looking into the eyes of, for instance, a hominid, you know, which you can't do in normal life, but uh, you're, you're making that a reality. Right. I mean, I think part of uh, what brings me to it and almost keeps me invested is that is that frustration that we'll never really know, but every mm -hmm. time there's another bit of evidence, there's another bit of a, uh, confirmation uh, or, or when I override something that I thought was true or I, I get over a preconceived bias and Ryan comes up with a good argument for something and it feels like we're that much closer to meeting them, meeting the unmeetable. So we'll never really meet the hominin, but every bit of new evidence that comes into mm. the picture, I think is, is a beautiful thing. And I think it's a worthwhile endeavor. I, I wouldn't rather be doing anything else. So um, how has the public reacted to your work so far, what, what they've been saying? I mean, I, I think it's overwhelmingly positive, and I feel really uh, humbled every time someone tells me that my work has inspired them to do something. But at the same time, there's, there's almost like the, the assumption sometimes from the scientific community that the public isn't that interested in science, which, I mean, to their defense, uh, I live in a country where scientific literacy is at an all-time low. Uh, we've... 50 years ago, we were more into science and astronomy than right now. And there's climate denial, as I'm sure you're aware it's, of. It's yeah. insane. <laughs> right. Uh, but at the same time, I, I'm emboldened by the fact that people people react to the work. People react to, the, like I said before, the, to that emotion that bring them to something that maybe they hadn't considered, where a certain look of a, of a hominin in their presence changes their or softens them to, to an idea that they might be uh, resistant to. I mean, I was just in Italy um, carving marble. Uh, I carved a piece of a, 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 it was a Lucy draped as if she was a neoclassical muse. So All right. it was less about the scientific accuracy, but more about how the science itself makes me feel and how as an artist, I grew up loving the Renaissance and those practitioners, how I would make 
a marble statue and, and and that's the the deity that i came up with right but it had this way of charming certain people that otherwise probably wouldn't care about evolution into a conversation that they could take home with them that they wouldn't otherwise have so i had a few people that were on trips uh at the quarry where i worked and hmm. they became quite fascinated with it it's like oh i've never heard someone talk about evolution this way it always seemed rather boring like or like I I just accept it because it's it's what the experts say, but I never knew that it came with such emotion or like it, it just grasped and interested them in a way that, like I said before, not to beat the dead horse, but sometimes writing doesn't doesn't grab some people. It isn't always the best way. It is a way, and it's it's one of the best things that's happened to our species. I mean, writing words is is a beautiful thing. It's just to have this as well in our arsenal in the fight against ignorance, I suppose, is a good thing. Right. So like you said, you're working with a scientist by the name of Ryan Campbell on a special project called Pithecus. Uh, I know this is still in the early stages, but what can you tell us about this project? Pithecus is, in a sense, our research organization, co-founded by Ryan and I. And it basically acts as the umbrella by which we operate under to support and promote our research. Uh, it, it's through this organization that we hope to reach as many viewers as possible to attempt to seduce them into loving science as much as we do, but to promote scientific understanding uh, in the anthropological world. So we, we hope to produce these to be available to private uh, collectors, to museums and educational institutions. So is anywhere at the moment we can find any information about Pithecus? Well, we have a Instagram page that uh, we've reserved for it we'll, because we plan to launch at the end of this year. Yeah. Uh, so we'll have information on there for your viewers. Uh, so it's basically just Pithecus on Instagram. But you can also find me and my work, which generally has a lot of updates about the work that we're doing in Pithecus uh, at Gabriel Venus Art under uh, Instagram as well. Hey, Gabriel, that has been really fascinating. Thank you so much for letting us in on your secrets. I um, guess the world is your oyster now. So what are your hopes and wishes for the future? Well, it's my hope that our publications are well-received and that our models also have uh, some success in the museum circuit so that they can reach you and your viewers and mm. hopefully many more people in the near future. Uh, I want to thank you very much for having me on here. Uh, I think the work that you're doing with this channel and just your, your overall enthusiasm about science. I think it's a worth, worthwhile thing, and I feel honored to be a part of it. And I'd like to thank you, Mark. Thank you. I mean, the reason you know I approached you because I saw your wonderful work on Instagram, and, and I just love the sensitivity of it, and you're obviously doing something different. And uh, I couldn't wait to have you as my first paleo sculptor on the channel. Well, so thank you for that. Thank you. Right, I will leave links to your social media in the descriptions below so people can follow you and check out your work. And I'm sure this won't be the last time that we speak on Evolution Soup. So uh, until our next interview, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.